Okay, uh, for those of you who are here with us for the first time, kind of give you an idea of how we, uh, how we do things. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel according to Matthew uh, for about, I don't know, four or five months now, I think at least. It's five months, and we're in Matthew 6. Uh, so we're teaching through it verse by verse, and uh, seeing what the Lord has for us each time. And uh, at the end of the teaching, we open it up for questions, objections, things we want to add to it. Um, so we kind of view that, I mean, even though I'm one teaching, we're kind of doing it as we're all teaching and helping each other, a body of Christ, and we're helping each other. Um, I think sometimes the modern American church has this guy up on a pedestal, and he's, he's the main guy, and no one questions him, and, and we don't believe that here. So, um, you know, I think the person who's teaching should be willing to allow the believers to question what he's saying and, and test what he's saying as the Word of God. So that's what we do here. And uh, I'm not infallible by any means, so I've wrong lots of times in the past. Um, but like I said, we're teaching through the Gospel according to Matthew, and uh, this week we're in Matthew uh, 6, and we're going to start in verse 19 and go through verse 34. But before we do that, I want to review uh, we talked about so far, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount here, and I want you to see is this flow here that Jesus has taken here through the Sermon on the Mount. This, in my opinion, the greatest sermon ever preached that's reported, and he's... He's changing their mindset. The people there were focused on outward things at all times, and he's saying, no, your sin isn't just outward, it's inward. You need to look on the inside parts. And, you know, murder, you know, murder, uh, hatred in the heart is the same as murder. Lust is the same as adultery. Uh, he's trying to switch their, their eyes from uh, doing things for men, doing things for God instead, for his eyes, and, and, what, he's, and what he's seeing you do. And, and uh, we, we talked about recently about prayer and fasting. We talked about tithing recently and what the New Testament teaches about that. And uh, talking about loving your enemies. Talking about that recently too as well and how God sees that and how we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for them and bless them and not curse them, not do the same thing to them they would do to us. Uh, but lastly, we talked about uh, prayer and fasting. And um, for those of you who were here, can you give me some, some good results that will come from fasting or some reasons you fast? What are some of the reasons you would fast? You want to spend time with God. You want to spend time with God. Very good, man. Okay. Very good. Good. For healing. For healing. That's right. Remember that one uh, story we went to when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and they couldn't drive the demons out of that boy? What did you just say to the disciples? This kind of only comes out but by prayer and fasting. So there's spiritual warfare going on and, and fasting. Uh, to get spiritual insight, we looked at that in the book of Acts how. They were praying, this group was praying, and they sent out Paul and Barnabas. So they got direction from the Lord about what they should do next. They sent out Paul and Barnabas to go out and, and be missionaries. Um, also for self-control of your own body. And we've taught ourselves since the day we were born, most of us, to eat three meals a day, or at least two a day for most of us. And, and now we're teaching our body, no, you're not going to eat today. And this time that I usually give to eating, to, to nourishing my physical body, I'm going to give to God in Matthew 4 4. You can't live by bread alone. That word comes from the mouth of God. So we're feeding upon God. And I know in my past, when I fasted, uh, the Lord, I thought my stomach had been fed. I haven't really been hungry. You know, the first day is always a little struggle, but after you pass that first day, it's like the Lord's feeding me. I don't even think about it anymore. And the Lord does some. And I shared a testimony last week about what, what happened one time when I fasted. It was a, really just God's hand involved in it, in my opinion. And. Um, the Bible does say not if you fast, but when you fast. This should be a regular spiritual discipline that we're involved in when it comes to fasting. Uh, so the question I asked us is, are you fasting? 
And uh, it doesn't say how often the fast, but there was that parable of tax collectors and the Pharisee. How often did the Pharisee fast? No, he fasted twice a week. So if this unregenerate, ungodly Pharisee can fast twice a week, then surely we should be pushing it up a little higher in, the, in our priorities here. And even if it's just one meal a day, that one meal that you would have spent an hour, hour and a half eating, you can go and be alone with the Lord. You know, and, and just do it and seek Him, and seek His face. We talked about prayer last week, and... and um, the Bible doesn't give us, give us a rule of how much or how long we should pray every week, like a certain amount of hours. And, and even though we didn't discuss this last week, I, I kind of ran out of time, and, but we, we didn't really talk about prayer without ceasing last week and what that means. The brothers talked about it afterwards during the fellowship time. Um, but the, the type of prayer Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6, about going into your closet, that's not talking about prayer, it's talking about setting aside a time, a, a time to actually spend alone with God. And this closet, what were what some advantages of being in a closet for prayer? Jenna? There isn't any distractions. No distractions. No distractions. Yes. Does actually actually literally be a closet? Does it have to be a closet where your shoes and your clothes are? No. No. But it has to be some place where you can be what with God? Alone. Alone with God. Alone with God. Alone with God. So that's, that's the whole point of the prayer closet is to get alone with God. And he used the analogy of the husband and wife. You know, if I told my wife and my children that I loved them every day, but I never spent time with them. Maybe I spent time with them, but I was just in front of the TV. I wasn't actually having conversation with them. I wasn't having FaceTime with them. Could they really see, tell, tell people that I love them? Even though I said I loved them, could they tell people that I loved them? No, they couldn't. So when it comes to our relationship with God, it's FaceTime with Him. He wants to be alone with you. And, and lots of good things can happen in your long time of prayer and fasting. And that's, that's your, that's your, it's your breath to your spiritual life. And if you're not praying, your spiritual life is going to suffocate. It really will. It really will. So we talked about prayer and fasting last week. Okay, so let's, this week we're going to look in verses 19 through 34. Now let's just review one more thing, I'm sorry, before we get to that. In verses 14 and 15, we talked about forgiveness. What were the three points that I mentioned about forgiveness in verses 14 and 15? Anyone remember those three points? Forgiveness. Okay, bro. Forgiveness is conditional. Okay. And he can be forgiven and use it. Right. Future sins are not forgiven yet. That's right. So the three points I made from verses 14 and 15, we use some other verses too. We went to the Greek word for forgive. Forgiveness is, is conditional. But that the conditionality does not equal work salvation, some people would say. Forgiveness is conditional, as you see in verses 14 and 15. You can lose forgiveness. Look at Matthew 18 parable of the unmerciful servant. Look at that for yourself in your own time. And then future sins are not forgiven ahead of time. Because your brother's wrong against you in the future, and you don't forgive him. The Bible says here that the Father will not forgive you of your trespasses. Those are the three points we've got to remember when it comes to forgiveness. And our, our atonement view, our atonement view should match what the Bible says about this. We find that our atonement view doesn't match to them. We need to change our atonement view. Okay? All right, so we'll start in verse 19 and read through verse 34. <clears throat> Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore, therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and the Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, could add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is own trouble. Okay, verses 19 to 21, we went through the message about tithing, which tied into Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. We talked about it a little bit, but I'm going to give you a couple more tidbits from those three verses there. And really, literally in the Greek, it says here in verse 19, do not treasure your treasures. That's what it's saying there. See, the, the translation, do not lay up your treasures, can really make people think, well, I, I can't save money now, which is not true. The Bible is okay with you saving money if it's for a purpose. It's not just to build up like the guy who had the big barns and build up more barns and God's in denial to demand your life of you. It's, not, it's, it's okay to save money for things. But do not treasure your treasures. It's more accurate, I think, in God's viewpoint because you shouldn't be treasuring earthly things. Because according to this, moth and rust will destroy these things. And the, and the word translated as rust here doesn't literally mean the rust that you see in your car, which it could be that, but it just means something that eats or consumes or devours or deteriorates. The things of this world are going to deteriorate. They're going to fade away. And we'll see a little while longer towards the end of this message uh, uh, what will happen to them in the end. But moth and rust will destroy these things. But the things you store up in heaven, things you can take with you, they will not uh, rust. They will not be destroyed. They will not be eaten up. They will not be consumed. They will last forever. You know, when things come into the kingdom, the final kingdom, it'll be here forever. For his kingdom shall never end. So when we think about our life and our priorities in life, we should think about, is what I'm doing right now going to matter 200 years from now? Because 200 years from now, we're all going to be dead. Yeah. Or Christ is going to come back already. So what we're doing now, is it going to matter 200 years from now? And the way I'm doing what I'm doing right now, my motives behind it, is that going to matter 200 years from now? So we live in light of eternity. Like Leonard Raven would say, I stamp eternity upon my eyeballs. Or you ask God to do that to him. Stamp eternity upon my eyeballs, God. So I may see things the way you want me to see them. So do not treasure your treasures. And he gives the reason why. And then the second thing in verse 21, uh, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you value the most in life, it'll show where your heart is. If you value the thing the most in life is cars and houses and possessions and nice clothes and money and all the things the world can buy that moth and rust will destroy, that's a sure sign that your heart's in the wrong place. 
But if you value the things of God, the things that Jesus has been talking about all throughout this sermon so far, Matthew 5 through 7, if you value those things the most, it shows where your heart is. So we're spiritually minded, we're eternally minded, and that will show where our heart is. We're not treasuring our treasures, we're treasuring God and things we store up in heaven. Now you see here in, in verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. And the eye here, the word eye, in verses 23 and 23 is, is a singular word. It doesn't mean two eyes, it means one eye. Okay? And uh, the lamp of the body is the eye. It's what you see the world through, through your eyes. But as a spiritual man, we should have one eye. And who should it be fixed on? Jesus. Yeah, let's look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Let's reaffirm that, what we just said. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, talking about Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the word looking there means to not just look that direction gate like uh, for a second, but to fix upon to turn from everything else and fix upon that. And what I want you to picture in your head, this is what I try to picture, is, uh, is that this, this walk of faith we're taking here on earth, we're walking up a mountain, and we're enduring this mountain, and the top of this holy hill is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're looking towards Him. And we have this backpack on our back, and if, if we take our eyes off these, look at these little pretty rocks on the side, we're tossing them in our backpack, it's weighing us down. It's weighing us down. But if we fix our eyes on Him, then we won't be weighed down. We're looking towards Him every single day, fixing our eyes upon Him, gazing upon Him, turning aside from all the things that will distract us in this world, and walking the way He wants us to walk. So when you, you picture this walk of faith, picture this mountain, this hillside, these pretty rocks on it, they, you can easily just pick up, oh, I like that one, I'm going to throw it in my backpack. Those things are just going to weigh you down. So you look upon Jesus, the author and, and finisher of your faith, and your eye is a lamp of your body, and your eye will be good. <clears throat> Now, just like the eye, remember, singular now, fixed on Jesus, we only have one eye, so we can't look in two different directions at once. One eye fixed upon Jesus. Uh, the eye is the lamp of the body, but what's the lamp of the eye? What's a lamp unto our feet? And a light unto our path? Word of God. So the lamp is the, the eye is the lamp of the body, but the lamp of the eye is the Word of God. So long as we're walking in the Word of God, our eye will be good. And our body will be good. We're using this instrument God has given us as an instrument of righteousness. Not an instrument of unrighteousness. So your whole body will be full of light as long as your eye is good. Fixed upon Jesus, fixed upon the word of God, obeying his commands. And you can walk in a world full of darkness. As 1 John 1 says, verses 5-7, through 7, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him but walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, then we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleansed from all sin. So they're walking in the light because he's in the light. And all our eyes fixed upon him, and we're fixed upon the word of God, which is a lamp unto our field, light into our path. 
then we're going to be walking the last he's in the light. And we will have true fellowship because we're in the same boat together. We're fellows in the same ship together, same boat, going the same direction, the same port, the same ending. The heavenly kingdom in the end. Jesus Christ. But if your eye is bad, and the word for bad here is, is, a, is worthless, it's uh, not healthy, it's cloudy, it could even mean like cross-eyed. Remember, it's supposed to be one eye here. But this one eye, as we'll see here in a second in verse 24, is trying to look two different directions at once. But you can't do that with one eye. You can do it with two eyes. Remember, this is a single eye, though. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be bad. So if you're taking your eye off of Jesus, where it belongs, and you've got that flashlight, the Word of God turned off, you can't see where you're going, your eyes can be bad. You're fixing your eyes upon the things that are around you. Or maybe your eyes become cloudy. You have some kind of disease in your eye. It's not a good eye. It's not working the way it's supposed to work. And the way our spiritual eyes are supposed to work are to lead us in the right direction, to get going towards Jesus, to stay on that path along the way. So if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Therefore, the light that is in you is darkness. How great is that darkness? You know, Brother Kevin uh, mentioned today, he was talking about uh, going to this, this preaching occasion with these teachers that were there, and talking about the blind leading the blind. That's one of the scriptures I was going to use for this, Matthew 15, 14. And Jesus just got done rebuking the Pharisees, basically. And the disciples said, well, don't you, don't you understand? They were offended by this. He said, oh, leave them alone. They're blind, leaders of the blind. If the blind lead the blind, they're both going to fall where? <laughs> so, a good reason to have our eye clean, to clear, have a clear eye, a healthy eye, is for our own sake, but also for the sake of others. Because whether you believe it or not, whether you're an elder or a leader or you think you're just a, a normal, everyday Christian, you're leading people a certain direction by your life and by your words. Even your thoughts which come out of your mouth. You're leading someone. People who are around you. The question is, where are you leading them? Are you blind, leading the blind? Or are you the seeing, leading the seeing? Or leading the blind to the, the light, where they should be? So they can walk in the light as well. So we don't want to be double-minded. We don't want to be cross-eyed. We want to have a single eye, a healthy eye, a clear eye, a sincere eye, an eye that sees, that walks in the light, that's using the light of God's Word to light the way. And then in verse 24, and no one can serve two masters. There's that double-minded person there. That cross-eyed person. But how's that even possible with one eye? It's not impossible. So they have, they have this, they're having this one eye, and they're trying to keep their eye, and that's why Jesus says you can't serve two masters. Because one eye can't look two directions at once. If your eye is not serving Jesus, it's serving the world. And James said, adulterers and adulterers. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we need to keep our eye fixed on Jesus, that one eye, a single eye, and be single-minded, not double-minded. For either will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And mammon just means, it's actually a, a transliteration of the Greek word. That's, that's actually what the word is in Greek, mammon. And it just means wealth, riches, property, the things of this world that Jesus talked about, the moth and lust will destroy. You can't serve both those things and Jesus. And it amazes me, I run into people all the time as I'm on the streets witnessing or in my everyday life, and they'll say, well, I'm doing this, and, but I'm still a Christian. That's well, not what Jesus said. 
You can't have two masters. You either love the one and despise the other, or you're loyal to one and hate the other. And what did Jesus say in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So someone's just breaking God's law all the time. What does that tell you about them? Do they really love God? Are they just indifferent towards God? No. You love one and you hate the other. Hate's a strong word, but it's the truth. And people don't understand. If they're not loving God the way they should, they don't love Him. They're not just indifferent. They're not just gray area here. They're just black and white. It's black and white. Love the one and hate the other. So we're not treasuring our treasures. We have a single eye upon Jesus. We're loving Him and obeying Him, walking in the light. And then in verse 25 it says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Some people's lives amount to things. To food and clothing. In fact, it's a lot worse than that, because food and clothing, you need those things. Most people, when they worry about that, they worry about, well, when am I going to get this new thing, or this you know, expensive thing, or this new video game, or this new car, or whatever they're thinking about, they're not even concerned with needs. They're concerned with wants. But yet Jesus isn't even, he's going further than that. He's saying, don't worry about your needs. Which is worse than worrying about your wants. <coughs> uh, worrying about your wants is work, but worrying about your needs is something that is a lot easier to do. And it's, it's about the cares of this world. And, uh, you know, in the parable of the sower, probably more properly termed the parable of the ground because it's, the seed's the same thing in each one of that, that parable you see it in Matthew 13 there was one that cared about the things of this world what happened to that seed? choked out so the cares of this world they will, they will choke the good seed of the word of God out of your life and you become unfruitful we don't want to be the unfruitful branch like John 15 talks about. We're the fruitful branch that's abiding in the vine and produces much fruit naturally. You don't have to, you don't have to beg an apple tree branch to, to, to bear apples. It just does it naturally. And if it doesn't, what do you do with it as a, a, a husbandman? Cut it off. Firewood. That's good for it. So we want to be abiding, not worrying about these things in the world, to have the cares of the world upon our heart. And life is more than food and clothing. And he goes into the birds here. Look at the birds there. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns. They're not storing up for winter. They're not concerned about those things. Are you not more of more value than that? So who's, who's more valuable, people or birds? People. And if God provides for birds, will he provide something that's more valuable in his eyes? Something that's made in his image? That's right. And which of you, by wearing, can add one cubit to the stature? A cubit is from your tip of your finger to the bottom of your elbow. Do they get taller by worrying about something? Yeah. Is getting taller really going to help anyway? No. <laughs> Maybe you're a basketball player, I don't know. might help them. <laughs> but by wearing, it doesn't do you any good is what Jesus is saying here. It doesn't do you any good. And you know what worrying shows? Worrying shows a lack of trust in God. For his provision for you. And you, you might want to consider yourself one of those PETA followers who thinks animals are more important than humans. Because that's what he's coming against here. That he, humans are more important than animals. If God provides for animals, he's going to provide for you too. So the lack of trust in God, it really breaks down to almost complaining. 
Because everything that happens in our life, either God allowed it or God caused it. And who are we to complain? Isn't God more wise than we are? Infinitely more wise? And none of us that I know of have been through what Job's been through. Naked I came from Noah's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. So we have a heart of thanksgiving that we've talked about in the past. So the worrying shows a lack of trust, a lack of faith, and a complaining heart. You're almost complaining about the way God's doing things. You're basically saying to God, God, um, you're doing a pretty bad job. That's what you do by worrying. We need to trust God. That He knows what He's doing. He's a lot smart. Who are we to give Him advice? Who are we to give Him advice? Then He goes into the flowers here. So why, why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They don't they don't work to grow up. They just, you plant a seed in the ground, and it happens. It's the right kind of soil, you got water, you got sun, and it happens. They don't work for it. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. Now I looked at some flowers in preparation for this, and there's lots of different lilies. There's like 110 different species, I think. And they're crossbreeding, they come out with new different ones, and it's all these beautiful colors, and you see these ones that are like pure white, too. <laughs> And if I understand right, a lot of the kings in Solomon's day wore white a lot. I think what Jesus is saying here, even in Solomon's splendor, he couldn't get his wife the whitest lily. They worked and toiled for that white clothing. They worked and toiled for that. You know, the, the clothes we wear today, they have these dyes in them. And, and they, they, people work to get these colors, these beautiful, pretty colors. And they, they spend lots of money on machines to get these things going. And then they sell it for lots of money. They have these nice colors in it. These lilies, they come out these colors naturally. They don't have to work for it. And so if the lilies, which are clothed so, so wonderfully, do not worry, they don't toil or spin, and you're more valuable than flowers, right? Made in God's image. Then why should you worry about clothing? Why should you worry about your needs? Your needs. The verse 30 says something very interesting in my mind. It says, uh, now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Thrown into the oven. Now, I want to look at some scriptures real quick. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Just touch on a little bit of eschatology here. Last things. What verse was that? 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Apostle Paul talking about the day of the Lord here. And uh, the next we'll go to Revelation 21. I believe being thrown to heaven is talking about when Christ comes back. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, once the heavens will pass away with a great noise, probably the seventh trumpet, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, from which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we have this melting with fervent heat. We have being burned up. And it even says the heavens will be dissolved. But the heavens there is not talking about the 
place where God resides. I'm talking about the universe, the sky, where the constellations are, where the stars are, where the moon is. Uh, that's what it's talking about. And when it says a new heaven and a new earth, it doesn't mean new in space and time. It means new refreshed, new unused, new unworn. I think the same thing is going to happen to our bodies when we get our new bodies. That God's going to resurrect our old bodies and make them new. He's going to refresh them. They're going to be unworn. As if they were never used before. Unused. Fresh. If you go to the store and you you know, you have your bananas at home and when you got them they were green. They turned yellow and then they turned black and it's like, well, I need some new bananas. So you go to the store and buy some more green ones. They're fresh. But these ones are not going to be completely new in time and space, but new as far as fresh. Unused. So unworn. So that's what we're looking for here. And I think that's what we're talking about. The, the flowers that are here, even though they're so beautiful, they're going to pass away. And I don't know what we're going to have in the kingdom, but they're going to be something even better. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Isn't the, I mean, me and John, we go travel sometimes, and I remember John, he, he, he takes pictures of flowers. And some college campuses have these really nice flowers up at their gates, and we're walking back to the car, and he sees these pretty flowers, and they some pictures, and he really likes the flowers. But imagine how great the flowers look, Brother John, in the New Kingdom. Amen. Don't need a camera then. <laughs> because their eyes will be refreshed and, uh, and unused and unworn, and we can see them probably even better than 2020 vision. Uh, go to Revelation 21, in verse 1. It says something very similar. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. So, once again, this word new means, it's, it's the Greek word kainos, it means new in condition, not in time. Unused, uh, refreshed, change. So, the flowers not only don't toil and spin for their colors, but the flowers get thrown into the fire. And uh, for those who are living for Christ, of course, they won't be thrown into the fire. If, if we have more value than them, then we shouldn't be worrying about these things. Verse 31, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And that's another thing I wanted to bring up for I forgot before. Worrying, almost like you're, you're, you think you're giving God some new information. God knows you need these things. God doesn't need to be informed about anything, ever. He knows these things. So us bringing before Him is really just us acknowledging them and it, Bring our dependence upon Him out in the open for Him to see that we're depending upon Him, not upon us, not upon our treasures, not upon worldly means, but upon Him completely, even if He provides through a job. And that, you know, I hear, I, a, lot of, a lot of times people will ask me, well, I want to go into, they say, I want to go into full-time ministry. They say something like that. And um, they'll say, well, but how, how, I, how do I support myself? And I said, well, wait a minute now, what are you doing now? I said, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a carpenter. Or maybe they'll say that I'm, I'm working at a department store. And I said, well, how are you providing? They'll say that. And I said, well, isn't, didn't God provide that job for you? Did God give you the ability to do that job? Yeah. So who's providing for you right now? God. So who's going to provide for you in the future? God. So, I mean, people think that... They think that when they step out into full-time ministry, now God's going to provide for them. But before, I was providing for myself. No. That's backwards thinking. 
And they need to change their thinking first. To realize God is a, the source of all good things that's come down from the Father of heavenly lights. Every good and perfect thing, James says. So we need to realize that and, and recognize that and realize our dependence upon Him for everything. <coughs> Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things shall be added to you. All what things? Things you need. The things you want? Necessarily. But the things you need, things you need. You know, during our, our tithing teaching, there, we read some scripture from Timothy, and it talked about having, having food and clothing. With these we shall be content. So the question I have for you, are you content with just that? If God took everything else away, everything else away, technology, everything, you had just food and clothing, would you be content? If not, you should be, get that to that point. Because for all we know, that could happen. This world is wicked. And we have the freedom now in America, to some degree. But that might change. And our hearts should be in the right place before our outside surroundings change. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring it about its own things. Sufficient for the day is own trouble. This doesn't mean necessarily you shouldn't plan for things. You should plan. You should... Uh, Hope for the best, plan for the worst. Uh, but we shouldn't be worrying about things at all. Not even today. But especially not about tomorrow. Okay. That's all I have to share for now. Uh, I do want to add one more thing here. Going back to this uh, worrying thing. I've been reading through this book called Back to Jerusalem. I've mentioned it several times. It's about the, uh, the Chinese house church's vision to complete the Great Commission. And they believe it's God's ordained purpose for them because the, in a general way the gospel has gone west around the world from Jerusalem and all the way to China and they think it's their goal to finish it up and bring it all the way back to Jerusalem. Bring the gospel message to 1040 windows we call it. We talked about that before too. And um, you know, going back to this issue of uh, complaining and allowing things to happen in our life that God wants to happen and not being a complainer, trusting God in those things. I want to read you a story about this, this sister named uh, Sister Chang, who was, in, who was a part of the house church movement. Um, when God spoke to Sister Chang, he told her to do something that made no earthly sense at all. He told her to go and preach the gospel on the steps outside a local police station. Such an action may lead to arrest even in Western nations. And in communist China, there's sure a way to invite severe punishment. But the more Sister Chang prayed about it, the more clearly the inner voice of God continued to tell her to do it. Finally, she saw no option but to obey God. Standing on the top step outside a police station, she boldly proclaimed the gospel to astonished onlookers. Within a few minutes, several officers dragged her inside and placed her under arrest. The human eye, to the human eye, her obedience looked foolish, but God could see things that we can't. Let me just stop right there. So many times in my life that God's spoken to me, told me to do something, and I just kind of almost fearful about what people are going to say, what they're going to think. You know, my, even my closest brothers in Christ were going to come against me about this. And, but I pressed on, and I had trouble. But God proved himself true every time. Sister Chang was sentenced without a trial and sent to the local woman's prison, where she was placed alongside thousands of spiritually lost souls. She boldly and lovingly proclaimed the gospel to her fellow prisoners. The light of the gospel spread like wildfire. Within just three months, 800 women believed in Jesus. 
the entire atmosphere of the prison changed, and new sounds of praise and worship were heard echoing down the prison hallways and in the courtyard. The prison director was greatly impressed at the change in the atmosphere and was able to trace it to the preaching of Sister Chang. He brought her into his office and said, You made, have made my job easy. There's no more fighting between the prisoners and the women have become gentle and obedient. We need more people like you working here. From today, we have decided to let you go free. We want to give you a full-time job here in the prison, and we will pay you 3,000 won per month, which is $375 in U.S., a fortune in rural Hernan. He continued, we will also give you a car and your own driver, and you will find comfortable housing. Sister Chang briefly considered the offer and then replied, 20 years ago, I became a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he has been wonderful to me. I don't believe your offer of a car, driver, and salary is in line with what Jesus wants to do with my life, and I belong to him. All I want to do is preach the good news. Despite her rejection of his offer, the director released her from prison that day, and she continued her ministry to the Lord. It always pays to do what the Lord tells us to do. Don't argue. Don't fight it. Don't try to work out all the details with your mind. Just do it. That is one mark of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, besides the Bible, I think one kind of book that encouraged me the most is like a biography and autobiography. <laughs> I've read probably about 50 of them in my life so far. And it always encouraged me to see what God has done with saints of God in the past, knowing that they were just men and women, and I'm just a man, and what God has done through them, He can do through us and around us. And, and uh, it's just amazing to read some of these stories. So I would encourage you to pick up, you can get it probably for about 4 or $5 on Amazon. Pretty cheap price, so. But now I want to open the floor, like we were talking about before, to people who want to add things to it or have questions or objections. Anything. Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And so, the hastening, what do you, what do you think that, you know, what that means? How can, how can we, we're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing, right, but we can also hasten. That means to speed up. Doesn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hasten the coming. By preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. The gospel goes, Matthew 24, it goes to the end of the kingdom, then he shall come. So if, if the whole body of Christ would do what the Lord commanded us, the obedience like the sister, mm -hmm. then it would, it seems that it would even hasten the coming of the Lord. Right. And we're saying, you know, like John said, come, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Right. So I'm sure he was also hastening the coming. The Lord, the Apostle John, is not just saying come quickly and doing nothing. <laughs> right. So that's encouraging. That always encouraged me. <coughs> Wanted to, uh, if, if I might, just read a, a part of Psalm 24 talking about his, the hill of the Lord. Sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, Psalm 24, starting in verse 3 Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And uh, it's really, I remember hearing, I think it was Leonard Ravenhill preaching that too. Uh, if I, I 
Or maybe it was Paris Reed. Yeah. I think it might have been Dr. Campbell, maybe. Oh, yeah. Hebrides yeah. Revival. That's what he is. Yeah. And uh, that's a great picture of what, you know, as we seek the Lord and we focus on, you know, this singular eye, our heart, mind, strength, and soul, yeah. ascending to, you know, wanting to please Him and obey the gospel and live for Him and love Him. And we stay focused on Him and, and to not let the cares of this life, the worries of this life, choke out and drown out that which the Lord wants to do in our lives. So, uh, through us for His glory and uh, to see others come to the kingdom. This, this is a... Uh, well, I had a question about... Uh, you mentioned something about uh, uh, the verse, friendship with the world makes you, you know, put your enmity with the Lord. I know there's a, I'm trying to find it, uh, where it is, uh, maybe in Proverbs, it talks about uh, the friendly, or friend, I believe it will be prove himself friendly, or something like that, and uh, I don't, I don't think this friendship makes you an enemy, of, you know, being friendly with the people is different than having friendship with the, the wickedness of the world, right. and uh, the darkness of this world, we walk through this place, you know, trying to um, extend <coughs> ourselves to the people around us, right. and uh, we can do that in a friendly manner. I think that's what I was talking about there, right? Yeah, friendship with the world is aligning yourself with the world and their practices and the way they live. That's what it means. I don't think it means that you're not being friendly to them or not even befriending them with teaching the truth. I don't think it doesn't mean that. And yeah, with fellowship, there's light with darkness. Right, right. Yeah, fellowship is a picture of two fellows in the same ship they're in the same book in the same direction I'm not on the same ship as the ungodly you're not Christians yeah. I'm a ship of the godly so I have no fellowship with them but I will warn them I'll reach out to them I'll try to bring them into my boat so that they can have fellowship with us and with God more importantly. Yeah. the ship that we're on is a battleship it's not a cruise ship no. it's not a cruise ship that's uh, a vacation I've about this many times it seems like the apostate Christianity that we can see happening uh, throughout the country, it seems like they want to be on the cruise ship. And when we're called to be soldiers and, and engaged in, in battle and we're in a war and we're on a battleship, not a cruise ship, you know, just coasting. And because there's no neutral ground really, you know, we're either advancing or we're going backwards. Right. And uh, we're, we're going to receive our rest when we enter into the the next kingdom. So That's right. A friend of mine would always say, uh, don't go on a retreat, go on the advance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we like to go on retreats as Christians. Don't go on a yeah. retreat, go on the advance. We'll have plenty of rest in the kingdom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Time to retire now. So. <coughs> That's Brother John's a good example of that. You're, you're on the advance, you, haven't, you retired, you were on a ship, right? Yeah, I was on lots of ships. Lots of ships. <laughs> and, you know, you didn't retire, you're on the advance now. Yeah, I, I retired from the Navy, but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not retired. You're still on the battleship. You're on the battleship. Jesus Christ, now, buddy. That's with the last breath. Okay, so we'll stop there.